This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. Today's innovations are tomorrow's possibilities. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to Trains. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. Eric, a thing that we've talked about on the podcast before, every Halloween or so, we try and do an ETF graveyard, which are things that liquidate. But we've actually never talked to someone who's actually liquidated an ETF, and we are going to do so today. Yeah, the whole idea of how hard the ETF industry came up a lot in the Bitcoin ETF race. because you've, you've long called this the ETF Terror Dome. Yeah, it's the ETF Terror Dome. So if you can get 100 million, like some even the like the eighth Bitcoin ETF has 100 million. I'm like, that's really good because it's a hard market. Uh, advisors are cost obsessed. Your performance out of the gate timing matters. There's a lot of variables, especially if you're doing something other than a Vanguardian cheap thing, right? It's interesting to find stories of people who took the chance, you know, in this case, folded up. They gave it, I don't know, five, six years tried everything they could. The market went against them. It was tough. These stories, I think, have universal appeal because 25% of every ETF launch is closed. So your odds are one in four of not making it, and especially if you're smaller and it's your whole thing, right? Uh, BlackRock and those guys can sustain the ETFs that don't sell for a while because they uh, do all these other things. But for an indie issuer, this is you know a lot of your whole life gets poured into this ETF. And these stories are really interesting to me, but I, I give everybody credit it takes guts, Joel, to launch an ETF because it's public. The performance is there every day. You can't hide from it. It, it does take a lot and it doesn't always work out. And that's why it takes guts. So we're going to speak with Validia Capital Management, where we've got Jack Forehand, who's the president, and Justin Carmino, who's the partner. The name of the ETF was Validia Market Legends. The ticker was VALX. If you like listening to them, you can check out their podcast, Excess Returns. This time on Trillions, Inside a Liquidation. Jack, Justin, welcome to Trillions. Thank you for having us. Hi, guys. Okay, so the ETF that we're going to talk about is the Validia Market Legends ETF, which RIP no longer. When did it launch and when did it liquidate? So it launched in 2014 and we liquidated it, it uh, during the pandemic in 2020. Okay. And why? What happened? Well, uh, going, back to the, going back to the beginning, actually, there's, there's a lot behind that. So we started, you know, we're, we're primarily quant investors. And, you know, when we look at like quant strategies that work over time, I think they tend to have a little bit of a value bent to them. So we had seen going back like in 2013 when Cambria did shareholder yield, that, that ETF did really, really well. I mean, Eric knows better than me, but it got like 300 million in assets pretty quickly. And, you know, the, the ETF space, like in that space was much less competitive back then. So in 2014, we decided, you know, we should do it. This idea of like following the strategies of legends, we thought we could market it. You know, it, it was a good thing for our clients from a tax efficiency standpoint. You know, we thought we'd get some outside capital. So, so we, we decided to give it a shot. So what, that, what does that legends was, mean? What, what, yeah, what were the, the legends? Idea? So, the, yeah, the idea is basically taking the publicly disclosed investment methodologies from famous investors, but it's extended beyond 
the likes of Warren Buffett, Peter Lynch, and Benjamin Graham, and other strategies that have been written about in books or academic papers, and basically creating models that utilize those strategies to select stocks. And so what the market legend strategy specifically was doing is at the outset, we were taking 10 of those unique stock selection models and building what was effectively a 100-stock portfolio that sat inside the ETF wrapper. So, and I, I think they're still around. I remember Alpha Clone was out there and there was some other cloning strategies that existed, but they were using 13F filings. So we thought we could maybe stand out from a strategy perspective by saying, okay, we're capturing these fundamental strategies quantitatively and let's stack these models together to create the actual portfolio for the ETF. I mean, that sounds like a good idea because it's like, okay, if if we have these got people, investors, legends over time, and you could kind of deduce what their strategies were and bring them into an ETF. We talked a lot about how ETFs can be like a vehicle for trades before. So when you launch, it must feel a little bit like you got bottled lightning. What did it feel like to bring this to market? Yeah, it was fun. Just learning like what goes on behind the scenes to get it to market in the first place was really cool because we knew nothing about that. But yeah, you know, we, we thought we had a pretty good opportunity. I mean, we had developed a pretty good plan in terms of how we would do this. And, and obviously that plan had to change a lot when we realized the reality of the ETF market. But, you know, we had some of our own client money we were going to put in there. We thought we had a good story. We thought there was a good factor investing underpinnings in what we were doing in terms of like exposure to value. And, and at that time, turned out to be completely wrong. But at that time, we thought it was a great time to invest in value. And we thought value looked really attractive. So we thought all of that together gave us a shot. I mean, I, I don't think we had any illusions that it was going to be easy, but we, we thought we had a decent chance. Well, and I think one of the things that we realized too that that was different for us because we were running SMAs before that, and we still do. But you know, when you come into the fund world, there's a whole different set of compliance rules and regulation around performance. So out of the gate, we couldn't show anyone any back-tested or hypothetical results. Uh, and so you know, we started whatever it was, December 10th of 2014, started tracking the actual fund. And it was always the question of people like the story, but it was like, what is the performance? And so you start with kind of a day one with no performance, and then you have to build it up. And just the first couple of years for this type of strategy just was, was tough. So we were always struggling in that sense too. One of the things as an analyst, you brought up Alpha Clone, And then I also think a guru and GVIP, these are ETFs that sort of look through 13F filings to see what stock picks hedge funds have bought and sold. And a lot of times these funds end up with a lot of tech. So they do okay. I can't say any of these have crushed it and been huge successes. Guru had a little nice run there. GVIP is a Goldman. So I think some people like that brand, but they haven't really like crushed it either in performance or uh, flows, but they've survived, I think, because they largely are in large cap US equities which have dominated. You guys are in small value. I guess as an analyst, I would have assumed this was large cap, but you weren't looking through 13Fs, right? And so as these market legends, what led you to small value? Did you pick small value and then say, we're going to take these legend strategies and apply it to small value? Or were the legends picking small value? I I guess I don't understand that. No, it actually flowed through the strategies themselves. So when you look at, say, Ben Graham's strategy or or any of these strategies that have either a long-term track record on their own or follow people who have long-term track records, these guys tend to be a little more value biased. And, and also, when you run a strategy and you run it as an all-cap strategy, so you know our universe was, say, 2,700 stocks, give or take, we could invest in. When you run an equal weight strategy with 2,700 stocks, the natural thing is you're going to end up with much more small cap exposure than, say, the S&P 500. Because one, you're equal weighting. And two, you're picking from a much larger universe that has all those small and mid caps. And you typically find more small, more value in that small and mid cap area. 
So it was just like a natural, we, we didn't come out saying we want to launch a small cap value ETF, but it was like this natural progression from the type of strategy we were running. And how much experience did either of you have around with, with ETFs before the launch? Uh, almost none, right, Justin? Pretty, yeah, I mean, we were running SMAs and we may have invested some of our client money in ETFs, but in terms of like launching an ETF and the inner workings of it, we basically did it all internally. Yeah. There's services out there now that you can kind of partner and white label. And those are great for a lot of different shops. You know, we kind of said we got our own exemptive relief. We interfaced with U.S. Bank on the compliance and the trading. Jack did all the custom uh, custom crate and redeems in terms of sending those trades to the to the custodian, to the brokerage firm or the trader. So, yeah. So, I mean, there's hundreds of launches a year thousands of ETFs out there. What did you what do you think you know now that you didn't know then about bringing an ETF to market? In terms of the success, the, the biggest thing I think I know now is that going back to what Justin said before about about short-term performance is that when you launch an ETF, you've got your story, you've got your marketing, you've got all that stuff, but what you do in those first 6 months, that first year, those first 2 years is a huge part of your success and it's something that you cannot control. And so for us as a small cap value manager, that ended up going the other way. You know, we, we launched at the same time as Kathy Wood or right around the same time. And that went the, you know, obviously in the positive way for her and the negative way for us. But, and this is not an excuse for it not working, but that is like, maybe not with index ETFs, but with these type of active strategies, people don't have any performance track record to go on other than what you've put out in the real world. And so they're going to judge you by that. And that's going to be a big part of your success. And, you know, in our case of our failure. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. When did you get a sense that uh, it wasn't going 
the way that you were most hoping for? I guess it took it took a little while. We never had great performance because as you guys know, small cap value coming out of 2014 had many years where it didn't work, but we did do okay. I think we got to like 30 million in assets at one point. So we, we crossed break even. So it wasn't like it was a failure out of the gate and it was just a disaster. It was like periods of great optimism. When we got up to 30 million, we're above break even. And then periods of great pessimism in 2020 was a great example of that. You know, when the market was down 35%, but small cap value got cut in half. So, you yeah. know, I think our ETF went down to like 15 million. So it, it wasn't, it was a back and forth. Justin, you may have some, some you know, comments on that, but it was got kind of a back and forth yeah. as it went. No, I agree with all that. The only thing is like at the low in COVID we had, I think it was like something like 13 million in assets in the fund. And we had a six year track record that it just wasn't good. And so as a business, we kind of just had to say like, we kind of have to shut this thing down because, you know, kind of pulling out of this is going to be tough. Now, in retrospect, to be honest with you, those types of stocks that we were owning and we were rebalanced. Part of what we did with the ETF, we actually followed like a monthly rebalancing. So every month we were rebalancing one tenth of the fund. So we were a little bit more active in that sense. So during that COVID decline, we were rebalancing and, and finding like more attractively priced value stocks. That was just part of the process. And then kind of coming out of that, this that kind of stuff took off. But we shuttered the ETF, I think, in like May of that year. So at least the fund holders didn't get that. Now, some of those clients' assets moved back over to the SMAs. So we were fortunate in that sense. But yeah. So I'm, I'm curious. So you had this six-year track record. And just wondering, did you have you kept a, a version of this strategy in place so that you could kind of track what the strategy would be doing had it not been liquidated? Yeah, we actually continued to run it. So for, for any of our clients that were in the ETF, we basically moved them the day the ETF shut down into an SMA strategy that was actually a little bit more aggressive focused small cap value version of what the ETF was. That obviously did exceptionally well. And so, you know, for us, that was something that we questioned after the fact, did we shut this ETF down at exactly the wrong time? Because we mm -hmm. basically shut it down at the COVID bottom. And as you guys know, small cap value went on to have a ridiculous run in the next year or two. So yeah, it, it did well. And, you know, the clients that moved to the SMAs did well, but you know, we always have that question, you know, did we make the right choice? That strategy that Jack's talking about kind of tracks AVUV, but with a little bit more octane. So the Avantis small cap value fund with kind of more variation, both to the up and downside. Uh, which, by the way, is a pretty big hit. Avantis has a, a pretty decent hit with that small value fund, but it came out better timing. And it's interesting. It's always darkest before dawn. They literally closed at like four in the morning. You know what I mean? Like, like they, they didn't realize the sun was just about to rise. Ted Aronson, who's a guy I interviewed for my Bogle book, he also uh, closed up at a similar time. There was a couple shops who were just like, I don't get this market. Like they almost had like an existential crisis and they were like, the hell with it. I'm done. And most of them were value type investors because value was supposed to come back like three or four times. And it would have like a couple months, but then growth would just run it over again and again, like Marshawn Lynch. Uh, you know, the go the cues would go beast mode, as we say. And I, I want to ask about that. We have been studying the cues, and for us, we felt like last year the cues were 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 going to have like a decade where small value and these other things were going to do well. And the cues came back, even though rates were high. I want to talk about the existential crisis that people who are steeped in academic literature, who have mentors, who have taken CFAs and multiple degrees, you know, only one manager on planet earth has outperformed QQQ over 15 years. And it's this guy, Ron Barron. And he only did it because he bought Tesla like 15 years ago and let it become like 50% of the portfolio. 
And that was the only winning way <laughs> to beat QQQ. Everybody else underperformed it. And a lot of the training is, well, these stocks look overvalued. I should go into better deals. How do you feel about that? Because all of the academic literature and everything's pointing to looking at fundamentals and value. And yet the Qs just kind of runs it over with these seven stocks leading the way. I guess I want to talk about your mentality and your spirit as this goes on year after year. Yeah, no, it's really, really tough. Because like you said, I mean, if you look at value spreads or if you look at any kind of data, someone like us behind the scenes would look at to say, is value attractive? Is value cheap? It's been that way. It's been cheap for a really long time. And we have we have had a good run recently. But like like you said, it's nothing like what's going on with the QQQs. But you know, ultimately, this, this is something you see throughout history. There's two things with this. One is this is something you've seen in other periods in history and value has always come back. So that gives all of us that follow it optimism. But the, but the other thing we, we tend to say to a lot of people is small cap value investing, particularly small cap value, aggressive small cap value investing is not for your average investor um, or, or not for a lot of your average investors. You, you have to be able to sit through these periods. And if you look at the period, say, from 2000 to 2002, after you know a period that ended in 99, where small cap value was awful, you got ridiculous performance over a three-year period. And that's kind of what the history of value tells you is you get these long periods where you struggle, you get outrageously good performance over a very short period. And if you can't stick through the long periods, you don't get the short period. So for, for us, for people who look at data, like you said, I mean, we're very, very optimistic about small cap value. It's still exceptionally cheap. But also, like I think every investor has to look themselves in the mirror and say, can I sit through those kind of periods, or or maybe as as you've talked about, Eric, a lot of like in terms of how people size arc and things like that. You know, sizing small cap value as a smaller portion of your portfolio is probably a good idea because it allows you to to maybe sit through those kind of periods. Yeah, no, I remember one year we said that I think it was QVAL, which is your colleague Wes Gray's ETF. We we thought that could be the next arc because or Tobias is because it was so concentrated, and if the regime changed, that one should pop the most. Then we thought it had arc potential, but um, it never lasted long enough to turn heads. It sort of needs to be like over a year. You know, it has to like have time to set in and it just never got going. I think the other question I have for you about value is we had Kai Wu in here who runs the ITAN ETF. He's a, you know, a quant guy too. And he talks about intangible value, which is like a lot of the numbers that all of the quants look at, the dark matter that isn't measured is the brands and the brand value. And there's a, the people and this other stuff that makes the Magnificent Seven and the Qs actually more justifiable and the sort of beaten up value stocks actually more justifiable where they are. In other words, that gap that you might measure that seems like value is obvious is actually more narrow because of the intangible value not measured by the numbers. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I think Kai is 100% right. We've actually had him on our podcast and talked about this as well. If you look at a company like, say, Microsoft, and you look at the price to book, like is is Microsoft's valuation relative to its office buildings and whatever physical things it has, does that make any sense at all? No, it doesn't make any sense. So it obviously makes sense to adjust for its brand, its technology, like all that stuff. And so I, I think actually what Kai is doing is awesome. And, and I think it's a great complement to traditional value. Another thing I would say, though, in, in favor of traditional value is when you run like a very cheap small cap value strategy, the types of companies you're investing in are not the types of companies that have a lot of intangible assets. So value does a better job of valuing those kind of companies that are the steel companies or whatever they are. Like they don't have tons of intangible assets. And so as much as like the price to book is way, way off for Microsoft or Google, it's, it's a better valuation metric for those really cheap companies. 
But when we had Kai on, he talked about the idea of blending both, which is if you have your traditional value, taking this sort of new intangible based value and putting them together in a portfolio can make a lot of sense because we don't know which path the world's going to take. We don't know if these other value companies are going to come back or if these intangible companies are going to continue to lead the way. So a combination of them can make a lot of sense. Okay. While we're on this sort of nerdy value talk, I got to ask you about a, a report that I was writing last week. We had the guy, um, Tim Rotolo on ETF IQ, and this guy, you know how you guys launched after a horrible run for value and you thought, okay, it's good to launch after a bad back test because then you have room to run if it goes up. I kind of dig that. That makes sense to me. You didn't get that run because it hasn't happened yet, obviously, but a lot of ETFs launch after a good back test and then they actually go down. Studies have shown that after it hits market, generally there's an underperformance period because they launch at the top. This guy launched this ETF that tracks coal stocks. And as we know, coal stocks are just like demonized all over the place. And a lot of them are really just beaten up. But if you dig into this, it's fascinating. Like they, the coal stocks are on 170% run, but their price to earnings is still five, which is half of their sector, which is the material sector. And the S&P is like 25. I think the Qs is like 40. And it's interesting to me as value investors, when you see something like this, you know, what's your take on that? Have you ever seen a mo- that much momentum and still that much deep value in one place? I mean, maybe not. But after the pandemic, we kind of saw that too. Like some of the PEs at the, you know, for all value, small cap value companies coming off the, you know, off the bottom of the pandemic were ridiculously low. And, and then you got that run where you had, you know, 100 to 200% and they still were pretty cheap. You know, we didn't see like value spreads getting crazy or anything like that. We still saw them on the cheaper end after that. So yeah, and, and that's, you know, studies have shown that's when you can really get some really great performance. You know, when you can get value and momentum together, working together, like, you know, like you, you referenced Wes Gray before, like QMOM became actually a value ETF for a while then. Like you had QVAL and QMOM looking very similar because value was doing so well. So you can get some of your best performance off periods like that. They're just, they just don't happen that often. Now, I, for, I forget what year it was, but we got caught in some energy names because the trailing 12 month earnings were really high, but the price of oil had fallen dramatically. So the forward earnings were coming way down. And so our system was picking up these energy stocks that looked like they were like incredible values. And I think that hurt us. I forget if that was like 2015 or whenever that was, whatever year, but I think Jack, we, we sort of modified some things coming off of that with our uh, value trap. We kind of run a value trap negative screen to try to avoid like really bad performers, like the worst 5% of our universe. And I think that was a result of those energy positions, if I'm remembering correctly, Jack. Yeah. You know, one one of the things anybody who does the type of value investing we do face is you're using past fundamentals to try to predict the future. And so what, what Justin's referencing with the value trap idea is, well, what types of scenarios would those past results tell us nothing about the future or tell us less about the future? And that's the idea that if, if you own a bunch of oil stocks and the price of oil just plummets, well, that's not in the past fundamentals yet. So we try to do some adjustments around the edges to say, all right, in a situation like that where the past fundamentals are not as predictive, what other things can we use to try to enhance our strategy? So I'm curious, knowing what you've known about ETFs now 
and you know, this sort of baptism and exposure to like having a great idea and the and the you know market not totally rewarding the strategy at the time and your conversations with financial advisors and clients and everything else. How, how do you evaluate just the ETF market as a whole now? I mean, there's so many things there. Obviously, Eric's brain is filled with them. Normal people aren't like that. But like, how do you, when you look at the options that are out there, how do you evaluate them now? And how has that changed from your experience? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say it's even more crowded and even tougher than when we started. And that was one of the reasons why when we look at shutting it down and say, well, you know, it was a mistake to shut it down because small cap value went on to do really well. You know, the other side of that coin is there were way more small cap value ETFs in 2020 when we shut it down than there were in 2014. So it, it's just, it's a very, like Eric, what you call it, what the terror dome, Eric, right? It's a, you know, it's, it's just a yeah. much more competitive space. It's a tough space. And we knew that going in, but I think it got a lot tougher as it went on. When we were trying to get the ETF up on some platforms, we went into UBS down in, I think it was Jersey City or something like that, wherever their ETF due diligence team was. And we kind of pitched them on the Market Legends ETF. And they were looking at it and they were asking us questions about our firm and the strategy and stuff. And then they're like, what are your plans on launching other ETFs? And, and we sort of, at the time, we were like, well, we're putting, because we were funding this on with our own money. So we said, we're putting all of our resources behind this ETF. But in retrospect, now that we kind of know how everything and how it all shook out, like I could see how a firm like UBS would want to see a firm like ours launching multiple strategies. And if we would have launched a value strategy, a growth strategy, maybe something using momentum or something like that, I don't know what you can slice and dice a lot of our stock selection strategies in a lot of different ways. So it's, I could see why they were asking that question and we kind of got it wrong. Like what we should have done out of the gate if we had the capital to do it was probably launched two or three of these things because maybe the growth one would have took off, the value one would have lingered there, but you could have used the growth profits to stay in the game long term yeah. for the value one to eventually see the see the data. Yeah, and also so. if you let's say you got thirty million in the growth, the the if nobody else bought it, it would it might have doubled to sixty just on the market performance, which helps right. you stay in business. It's interesting them and Kathy having this sort of like launch date where they both thought they were right. Kathy happened to get the performance, not to say either, the, both ideas were completely logical and genuine, but it's just interesting. And both went all in. I mean, she doesn't have any value hedge, that's for sure. She doesn't just doesn't <laughs> believe in it. Could you guys even launch her growth stocks or, or is that just against your like, I don't know, like being to be into high growth? No, not at all. We have, we have strategies that are growth. We have momentum. We have all kinds of strategies. They just tend to have a bias. If you look at them all as a whole, they tend to have a bias towards value. But no, we could have done that. And to Justin's point, I mean, that, that might have been the best way is to have, you know, you see that a lot, I think, with ETF launches, people will kind of do both ends of the spectrum so that you, you're at least going to win on one side of it. So we, that might have been something we should have done. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. 
There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. We haven't talked about artificial intelligence, which if there were ever a buzzy uh, a word or phrase, uh, it feels like it's exceeded all uh, rational expectations already. Um, when you look at what's capable in investing also at the companies that are obviously becoming increasingly in- involved and invested in this space, what, what, is, is there a moment that any of this looks like value or is it just all speculation and growth still? I mean, there's a couple sides to AI. There's there's like the market impact of it and there's kind of what's going on behind the scenes. So we're, we're starting to play with it in terms of, you know, it, it can be useful in value in terms of maybe you actually constructing value strategies. You know, for us with our biases as value, as value investors, you know, it's hard for us to see like those, ty- it's hard for us to invest in those types of companies. And, and you know, the thing about growth too and especially early stage growth is quant strategies do not work well at all because you most of the, if you look at the AI type companies right now, most of them will not do well. The basket of them probably will not do well, but there'll be just some outrageous, massive winners in there. And that's where the growth people, the people that are good at growth investing, the venture guys, the growth investors, they do a really good job of being able to figure out what those companies are. Like we can't apply a quant screen right now to those types of companies and say, here are going to be the winners. It just doesn't work. So we don't exist that much in that space because our types of quant strategies don't work very well there. Just from an investment standpoint, there are some, I mean, we don't do any of this, but Doug uh, Clinton over at Deepwater, he's Gene Munster's partner. They're building these and tracking these indexes, broad-based market indexes that are weighting companies based on sort of looking at their, I guess, fundamentals through the lens of AI and then trying to let the AI create sort of a better index versus market cap weighted. And I think they started tracking that uh, at some point last year. So obviously they got a long ways to go in terms of when the performance becomes meaningful. But you know, you're starting to see some strategies be created using using AI. The only thing that I wonder with that is, you know, if you feed ChatGPT or some AI engine I don't know, 30 years of fundamental data and ask it to like create a strategy and you get this like great back test. It's like, well, is that just maybe a big exercise in just data mining and 
does it make sense and is it likely to work going forward? But there's starting to, in the academic world, there's some, been some research where some of the academics we've actually had in our podcast are finding things using AI and machine learning. And it's almost like the mindset is, it almost doesn't matter why it works. The fact that it works is it works. And so it's kind of a weird thing. Like we tend to be grounded in like first principles and why value investing should work or, or why growth at reasonable price investing or why quality companies should compound over time. But the AI is kind of bringing us a little bit in a different direction to some extent. Real quick about you guys have small value. You guys are the quants. And I'm friends with the quants. I, I met you, Justin, at West Gray's Marines March for the Fallen, which, by the way, this guy, Justin, is an Iron Man. Like, there's a lot of Iron Men in the quant world. They lo- love to work out. This guy's like the, the top guy. I think he did the race like in half the time I did or something like that. You, you still, do you do Iron Man long, uh, runs still? No, I'm ju- yeah, just, a, just a runner and, and rucking when I can. I, have, I didn't do Wes's, uh, I didn't do the March for the Fallen last year. It's it's tough. That's that's pretty brutal, but it's it's so good and it's so good to get out there and just work hard. And, and I was impre- I was impressed yeah. by you. Um, uh, okay, so these quants. I have a theory that part of the other thing going on with the quant world is that you've got the ETFs coming out from themes and even tracking metrics. So metric specific. So for example, the free cash flow yield ETF, CAF and CALS have gotten billions. I mean, the flows into these are ridiculous. They tend to lean value. Then you've got something like natural resources ETFs, which is now the biggest thematic category. You open up the hood, it's largely value. What do you think of this idea that just sort of slapping on different names to ETFs actually is maybe part of how to sell value going forward as opposed to just calling it value? I mean, that that sort of makes sense to me because I mean, I think people... Those themes and ideas and narratives, you know, can make it more understandable, maybe make it more sellable. You kind of get off the value train and it's more like, okay, we're going to look to capitalize on this theme in the market or trend. I can certainly see that for sure. There's just so many, you've seen so many ETFs with like small cap value or whatever in their name. It probably is good to try something different because going back to our own experience, like and you compared us to Kathy Wood before, it wasn't just performance that she did better than us. She is a master of marketing. The, the stuff she talks about for the future and the 50% GDP growth and all that stuff, I mean, she is really, really good at that. And, you know, we're not as good. So, you know, that, that is something we probably could have figured out is maybe if we had wrapped it, if we had named it differently or we'd wrapped it in a different way, maybe it would have done better. Yeah, we, we joke on the team sometimes. They should have these have like companies that make money or stuff you really need in life. Just... You know, because her stuff is all like, you know, electronic and robots and it, I don't know, just like getting back to basics, you know, Joel, like that just seemed to, and that actually worked in 2021 for a little bit, right? Some of the, uh, those names actually became popular companies that had a lot of cash. It all of a sudden became like fundamentals mattered for a brief moment there. Well, I'm just curious. Do you ever think that you'll do an ETF again or was this a one and done? And stick to SMAs from now on. I think it's I think it's unlikely would be would be my uh, my answer to it. I just think it's a tough. I mean, if if we ever have a ton of success in the business and we want to try it again, maybe. But it's just going back to what I said before. It's just a really really tough space right now. And it is there are people like say Simplify as an example. There are people who are finding things that are white space, things that are very different than anybody else is offering. But for us in the quant space, whether it's quant value or quant momentum, I mean, there are some really really great 
cheap funds. Also, if you look at something like QVAL, which you mentioned before, when we started, QVAL's fee was probably twice what it is now. So just, just to show how much fees have compressed. So even if we had a great idea, it would be very hard to execute it from the perspective of we'd probably start with a break-even that was double than what our break-even was when we did it the first time. All right. Jack Forehand, Justin Carvalho, thank you so much for joining us on Trillions. Thank you for having us. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weppershow. He's at Eric Valtrunas. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Bye. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.